when the negotiations were going on for the contract on this film, uh, were, were you or Cubby aware that the, the other movie was shooting? Uh, does, did that give you any leverage? Uh, uh, we were aware that it was planned. I don't think it gave us any leverage at all. I, of course, Jack Schwartzman came to me and asked me if I wanted to do that or did I want to do this. Yes, of course, he gave me a certain amount of leverage. I said to Sean, which one do you want to do? He didn't do, want to do the one with Cubby, so I'm here, and he's there. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to the James Bond Complex, the podcast in which we discuss, rejoice, Analyze with a fine-tooth comb the James Bond phenomenon from Fleming to film and everything in between. Ooh. ooh. Um, I'm I'm one of your co-hosts, Jason Kim, and we also have... The other one of your co-hosts, Edgar (laughs) Chaput. And tonight, we are not... We're going to take, not a left turn, but we're going to take a... Gonna reload the gun. We're gonna uh, take a recoil, t- recoil mo- uh, movement, and we're gonna discuss one of our uh, past episodes, past films that we discussed as part of one of the anniversary mm-hmm. movies of 2023. And the movie which we will be discussing is none uh, other. Let's see, is it uh, Live and Die? We're, we're doing Live and Let Die tonight, right? Uh, you were close. It has the same <laughs> same bond. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, we 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 can we're not only... doing we're not doing never say never again. I'll tell you that much. But we are doing a movie very closely associated uh, with never say never again. The, the the iconic classic never say never again. Uh, Octopussy, Octopussy. It is the fortieth. Yes, it is. Which I can't believe. I mean, it, to think that the eighties are forty years ago or four decades ago is just blows my mind well that is uh, that that is life such is life as as bond tells domino in never say never again say la vie <laughs> oh i don't man i can't remember but yeah uh so this episode we're not gonna we're not gonna go through the movie chronologically but we're gonna just talk about i guess our personal connection with the movie if you have any like i wanted to ask you edgar uh when was the first time you ever saw this movie or maybe the first time maybe you saw it in passing on Canadian TV, but then you actually sat down and watched it in order? Like, I guess. So, yeah. Tell me your first experience with this movie. Well, my first experience with this film is is a particular is a particular importance in my life because it was the first James Bond film I'd ever been exposed to. Uh, in fact, as if, if as memory serves. And as one grows older, memory sometimes starts to fade. But as mine serves me for this recording, uh, I was a very, very young child. I don't know, maybe six, seven, eight years old. And I was uh, sick at home from school. So uh, I want to make myself perfectly clear. I do not play hooky. But I was sick that day. And uh, as as I seem to recall, my my mother uh, suggested uh, renting a movie. And uh, she she thought she had a pretty good idea in mind. And she was a uh, my mother was a very big James Bond fan, number one. And she was a very big Roger Moore fan. 
and uh, she came back home from the video store with a VHS copy of, of Octopussy. And here I am tonight uh, in early 2023, co-hosting a James Bond podcast. So the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> How about oh, you, uh, Jason? No, I, I think this is the very first time I ever heard that story, and I really love that. And my sto- I've had similar stories like that for other Bond movies, like one of, uh, you know, like watching Bond movies when I was sick or on a sick day, but those were the first Bond movies. I think one, one of the Bond movies I did rent when I was sick during my grade school days was Live mm-hmm. and Let Die, one of the movies mm-hmm. you guessed. But so I remember, I think I was about, this was ninth, spring 1999, so I was, not, I was 10, going on to 11 years old at the time. And and this is before World Is Not Enough came out. And I was just, mm-hmm. at 10 years old, I was already well head head over heels into the james bond franchise and i and i evangelized my james bond fandom to all my other friends <laughs> you evangelized it interesting yeah. i evangelized my bond fandom to all my other friends you know who always hung out with me at school or at like you know korean set community settings and whatnot and some of them became my followers or you know became bond fans as a result of me can i i i don't like to make a habit of interrupting but i will i will force the issue just this one time you mentioned in your 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 korean community centers now three years later did some of those people get back to you uh after die another day came out and said what the hell are you talking about you like Uh, these things (laughs) there, there were some issues but then at least it was a unanimous issue instead of a but I will say before three years later, uh, those same people, we all watched it together and then complained together. So it was a little mm. different. People that complain together stick together. But yeah, back to 1999. So, uh, you know, at the time, you know, it was a Friday, you know, a Friday afternoon after school for the weekend. My dad decided to take me to Hollywood Video. So there used to be a video rental store called Hollywood video, similar to Blockbuster. And then mm-hmm. I go to the action video sec. And at the time I hadn't watched all the James Bond movies. So, you know, I was just watching them based on what was available at the store. And one of them mm-hmm. was Octopussy. And I remember the cover looked so cool. And so, you know, I, you shouldn't <laughs> judge the movie by its cover. What was the old cover of Roger Moore pointing his Walter PPK with the helicopters in the background. And I was huge into like military mm-hmm. weapons and military history at the time. And, so, and I was like, oh, I don't rent this movie. And and my dad's like, oh, yeah. My dad's like, oh, yeah, Octopus is a very good movie. We should w- watch it. And thing is, uh, I always try to explain this to people is, uh, so, you know, my dad's not the, not proficient in English. And Octopus, mm-hmm. and my dad watched Octopus in the 80s in Korea. And he said he remembers, the like, the fervor of watching that movie because it was about the same time when Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom came mm-hmm. out. And he always right. relates that as one of the best cinema. He always says, like, some of the 80s cinematic experiences in Korea were the best, and Octopussy being one of them. Hmm. And the reason why I say his English proficiency isn't great is, uh, uh, you know, all the movies, they weren't dubbed, but they were s- subtitled, translated mm-hmm. to Korean. So uh, none of the English slangs or the or the jokes never translated. So, like, when my dad and I watched Octopussy together, like, he didn't have, like... Uh, he didn't have like uh what is what's that like any embarrassed or like uh what is that he didn't have any cringe moments because like none of the jokes translated to korean how did they uh how did they subtitle in korean the tarzan yao (laughs) 
<laughs> Good question. I don't remember, but so the movie was translated. So there are a lot of times, uh, uh, a lot of American movies are translated, not tr- are not translated, but they're just spelled out phonetically in Korean letters or Korean alphabet. So it was just called Octopussy in Korean as it is in English. So, but the slang doesn't mean anything to my dad because you know it just it was just spelled out phonetically. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, I mean, even in English, I'm not sure what an octopus is supposed to be. So, <laughs> and it's an English language film. So, speaking of which, uh, uh, last year one of the best shows I watched was uh, James Gunn's Peacemaker on HBO, and it was like the most politically incorrect slash very self-aware TV show. The very first scene is when the character checks into the hotel. She's like, "I thought I was supposed to be like James Bond now," and then. She checks into a motel, by the way. She's like, and then she's like, I wanted some champagne and some octopuses and shit. And her wife, her wife was like, you better not be getting any octopuses in here. And, he, and she's like, what is an octopusy anyway? And then she's like, right. oh, that's who, uh, that's who Maude Adams. Play. And she's like, she's like, oh, that's who Maude Adams played. And I was like, wow, a movie actually mentions Maude Adams by her name. And then her wife is like. Oh, does that mean that the Maude Adams have eight pussies? And I was like, <laughs> and you know, that, that's how the terrible a desecration of the iconic classic that is Octopussy. I will not stand for it. <laughs> and then my next experience, and then and I bring that up. I bring I explain our first experiences because uh, last year, last year when I was in London at the final leg of my holiday, I'll. I had the great pleasure of watching Octopussy with one of our friends of the show, Becca, who. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, do you expect us to talk co-host? And yes, as well as uh, AJ Chadry, uh, who we all and several and Simon as well as Simon as well. Ah, so good old Simon and good old AJ. So those three and several others, I and some people from the Hildebrand the Hildebrand Bond fan club were there. We all watched Octopussy at the uh, Prince Charles Cinema Theater, cinema mm-hmm. located at Leicester Square. So Leicester Square, where they have all the Bond premieres or just movie premieres. The mm. They have the main theaters, but the Prince Charles is like off the corner and a smaller theater. And not the biggest theater, but it was a grand old time. And I didn't... And when I watched Octopussy at Prince Charles Theater, I thought it was just going to be a bunch of like a small hardcore fans. But there was actually a for Octopussy, there was a pretty uh, sizable crowd, apparently. Mm-hmm. And, and I just loved how like during every joke scene and whatnot, the entire British public just reacted. I loved seeing the reaction throughout the mm-hmm. movie. And afterwards, uh, I talked with AJ because you know, AJ gave me the Cameron Bay tour of London of Bond locations, like he always does for any other Bond mm-hmm. fans. And if you're a Bond fan going to London, please reach out to AJ Chadry. <laughs> He's just waiting for people to show up so he can Cameron Bay them. And then <laughs> one of the places, so I asked him to take me places that I hadn't been before, and one of those places was the Sotheby's auction house mm-hmm. that we see in the movie. So it was, it was kind of surreal that as soon as I see Octopus, yeah, I actually we take us to to Sotheby's, Sotheby's mm-hmm. auction house and he did the photos and he asked me about my first experiences of watching the movie and I told him the exact same story I just told you now that he is a 
he for our dear listeners he actually has cousins and family from india Mm -hmm. and he said that during the 80s like yeah i know the movie is not sometimes can be culturally politically incorrect but he told me that at the time in 1983 it was really cool that his cousins got to like experience like you know bomb crew like being in India and filming and right. then and him and his cousins like sending him pictures and just the experience and that's why I always say I'm not trying to be political but like that's why representation matters because like mm-hmm. bec- and that that story really made me happy about AJ is because I was like wow I was like because sometimes like I always say evangelize or outreaching isn't just about making a new movie or making them but sometimes like you know going to these places and like relating to the audience so that mm-hmm. that the, those audience can come back come into the movies well i mean it's gotten to the point in the franchise where there are certain countries and, and governments or municipalities i guess more often than not that really put all their their backbone into having james bond show up mexico city and and rome being notable examples for for Spectre, where they shut down streets, and those those are just two examples of, of locations where the municipal governments, and in some cases, you know, statewide governments, um, you know, when when the Bond production teams knock at their door, you know, they sort of roll out the red carpet. But I, I take your point about the whole representation thing. It's it's sometimes it's easy to 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 forget that that is one of the byproducts of these movies going to different areas and. Perhaps the the effect was more notable in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, whereas you know, I mean, so Bond goes to No Time to Die, uh, goes to goes to Italy, No Time to Die. You know what else is new? But you know, back in 1983, when he goes to Udaipur in 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 India, no, that might have felt pretty different for people, uh, be them the English patrons that went to see the movie in 83, or even when the movie played in India. You know, sort of just. The surreal idea of this hugely impressive and expensive production shot on their streets and they can see buildings and, and, and colors and, and sights and sounds that they're familiar with. It's, you know, it's it's an interesting byproduct of, of, of this franchise as a whole. Oh, yeah. And then especially like during the 80s, I think the Indian community or the South, I don't want to say Indian, but the Southeast Asian community in Britain was, I mean, it always was growing since since post-World War II, but I think during the 70s and 80s, the, the Southeast Asian community in Britain grew heavily during the 70s and 80s. And I mm-hmm. think uh, for AJ to, AJ and the other older fans during the 80s to experience that, I can't, can only imagine what that was like. And I hope... One day, that's what I, you got to experience in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope one day Barbara can d- deliver that flavor to me for Korea. Oh, maybe, maybe one day, maybe one day. I, I, I will admit, uh, after Matt and I did our fictitious Bond 26s a few years ago at this point, we had very, very early conversations about when we might record a bond 27 obviously spoilers we never did it but but i was thinking about a south korean location for my pre-titles but we never got past pre we never got past pre-production phases on bond 27 <laughs> speaking of pre-titles uh i was thinking about this is one of my favorite pre-title sequences bar no time to die but uh 
And John Richardson, who was the special effects supervisor on this movie, as well as many other Bond movies mm-hmm. before and after this, said of all the of because they've been doing the Bond 60 on asking crew what their favorite scene in a Bond movie is. And John Richardson said the octopus pre-title sequence is his favorite. And because if you think about it, like everything was shot for real, like all practical effects. This was 1982, 1983, before days of CGI. So like everything you see on screen, they did for real. And there's movie magic. And mm-hmm. it's not like Roger actually flew the Acrostar, but the Acrostar was attached to a, a trolley. And then a truck pulled it with Roger inside during the missile mm-hmm. sequence. There are some, uh, in preparation for this episode, I, I read um, the MI6 Confidential um, special uh, issue um, chaperoned by a friend of the show, Bill Koenig, uh, about octopus. It's basically a sort of a, a long form. It's 100 pages with a lot of pictures, but still it's 100 pages of sort of John Glenn just being a raconteur and, and revealing and sharing his his memories about making the movie. And, and some of the stuff he mentions about the pre-title sequence was quite quite fascinating. Next time, if you want me to lend that thing to you, next time we meet up, which could be soon, mm-hmm. um, I'd be happy to bring it along and, and, and um, have it exchange hands with you. But he mentioned stuff like there are certain shots, and they do look a little funny in the the movie mm-hmm. but there are certain shots where like the 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 missile that's pursuing bond in the aquastar and the plane itself look a little wobbly it's because it's a small little model airplane yep and it's there's a string attached and the string is is carrying a um some sort of a little firework uh device so that's, so that's why it looks a little funky in some shots uh of course there's the famous jaguar the uh where they sliced off the roof and uh, they sort of hung with a pole the the aquastar on it that's when the aquastar is going through the yeah. hangar before mm-hmm. it blows up and they're, they're just an immeasurable number of fascinating stories about that pre-title sequence so one one thing i didn't know um unless i read it previously and my memory erased it but like many people although the country the location in in the bond universe is is never named like most people, I thought it was some version of Cuba. Well, as per as per John Glenn, given that the UK and, and Argentina were in a bit of a rivalry in the early oh, 80s, yes. apparently it's an unnamed version of Argentina and not Cuba. This is as per John Glenn. I could um oh, I'm gonna tell that to my friend and I think you know you know, like for some reason I never thought that I mean, me when I, I remember when I first watched this movie, uh, having been to Ar- Argentina, not Cuba, mm-hmm. but and Matt has been to Cuba for your to, to listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. Having, I'm um, not being the geogra- I mean, I was not the ge- geography master when I was in when I was ten years old, and I you thought, are now. <laughs> and that's when I st- when I was ten years old is when I started taking Spanish lessons, and I and I just always presumed that oh it must be Spain because you know Bond is in England and Spain is right below. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course, and logical. Then, and then the line always bothered me. I was like, I was like, why does he say see you in Miami if there's a if he's in Spain? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that that's another point. The see you in Miami line makes geographically most. speaking a bit more sense if they're in a a nondescript Cuba, but apparently, the, the, to, apparently, according to the guy who made the freaking movie, they're in a nondescript version of Argentina. 
Which makes more sense. I mean, because uh, the Falkland Wars were during 1982. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 1986 is when, was it 19, uh, correct? Was it 1986 was when Argentina won the World Cup at, via yes. Maradona's hand of God against England. Mm-hmm. Hand yeah, of God, my ass. <laughs> quite, quite something. That's quite something. Well, he was a little bit cheeky when he gave his game interview. He sort of... Maradona only sort of semi alluded to a little bit of help he gave himself, but uh, we we digress. This is not the World Cup detour. <laughs> and then uh, I always thought, so this few things I wanted to say about the pre-titles was I always thought Roger's disguise was so cool, like like he's it looks like he's wearing a turtleneck, but he rips off whatever mm. that is, and he's in a mil- and then the, his jacket's reversible. And when I went to the Bond in Motion in 2015. The one in London at Covent Garden. Yeah, that we've been to the same one. That's that. That's also the yeah. Bond motion that I know of. So they had the Acrostar, the alligator, as well as that jacket, and the jacket, and then the jacket's on a mannequin, and, and the mannequin rotates. So you see both the military wear as as well as the sports wear, you know, the, the sports coat. I mean. So at the Covent Garden in London, Bond in motion. They had the pre-titles. There are many things from Octopussy, such as the Acrostar, the Alligator Submarine, Crocodile Submarine. No, Crocodile Submarine. The Croco Sub. Because it's not, we're in India, not New Orleans. And they had Roger's costume in that movie. So, so it had the, rever- uh, the, the reversible jacket in which it and it's on a mannequin and the mannequin rotates so you see both sides of the mm-hmm. costume so you see the sports jacket side as well as the military wear side i, I feel i i need uh that, that's right i'm choosing my words i need your opinion on something uh jason a point on which matt and i actually differ uh, quite feverishly um what do you prefer the reversible jacket from the pre-titles of octopussy or what I lovingly call the tactical tux uh, early in Living Daylights. Tactical tux? Well, when he goes to the opera in Bratislava, and oh, when he's about to snipe, he sort of whooped the little Velcro oh, to that. Oh, no, 1,000% the, the tactical tux. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, by the way, that is the correct answer, but I digress. Um, but I, <laughs> what else I, you got for me, Jason? <laughs> but I also really like that, like, like I said, uh, I mean, I'm going to raise some heads, but maybe not raise some heads. I know Kyle and uh, Easy Smiles, Expensive Watch, Kyle Barbo and Matt Spazer agree, will agree to this. But I think Octopussy is one of Roger's best costume outfitted Bond movies. Maybe it's because Octopussy is one of the first Bond movies I did see. So so I have that bias. But I just remember just like watching this movie. I mean, I love the reversible jacket, but... Um, but I was like, I remember when I first watched this movie, I was like, man, Roger Moore looks so good. Like as a 10 year old, I was like, man, mm-hmm. I want to be like, this is probably one of the, this is the one movie that really kind of like made me go deeper into my Bond band. I was like, he's so mm-hmm. like, I just love this like British English panache and just like his, like I thought, and I just thought, always thought he looked extremely mm-hmm. debonair. And, but back to the pre-titles is uh, I always, if you think about it, this is the first, or this is the last pre-titles that we get in which the pre-titles mission or sequence has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Yeah, 
Because like, yeah, it's, I, it's I, like I studied fingers. those for a long time, and and it's true. Uh, for for a while, I thought there were a couple that came later that were fully independent of the rest of the story. But no, every single one of them, either in overt or very subtle ways, details that play out. That I yeah, I think I that you're right. I think this is the last one where. Once that little Argentinian escapade is done, uh, we're moving on to something completely unrelated. Yeah, I mean, now, I, now dude, that, that, that's going to keep me thinking for a while. But I, I truly believe that. And even though I always thought it was Cuba, too, but uh, Argentina <laughs> makes more sense because, like, I always thought I hope that you sleep soundly tonight. I hope I didn't ruin your night. Because the, the, the Argentine, the. Because with the horse racing and stuff, our horse racing is pretty big in Argentina. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's as because I always it always looked like a Spanish-speaking country with some British influence, and mm-hmm. there's no other country that I could describe. I've been to many Spanish-speaking countries, by the way, and Argentina is definitely the one that I would say it has the most European or at least British influence, like culturally, mm-hmm. architecturally, everything. Right. Right, right. Well, John Glenn does bring that up in the Octopussy. Uh, it's, I guess it's not a book, a heavy magazine. That mm-hmm. the fact that there is a, an equestrian uh, subplot to to that pre-titles is is one of the reasons why it's apparently Argentina. Apparently, that's a very big uh, sport in that country. At least, yeah, it is. You no, know, it is. The horse racing and polo are very big in Argentina. I mean, having been to Argentina, polo, yes, polo, polo. Yeah, I think polo. Playing polo. Yeah, polo is huge in Argentina. I mean, I got invited to a polo game in Argentina, but I didn't go. But, but, I did, but anyway, uh, you but can't con- you can't keep on no showing through these things, Jason. <laughs> but to continue, like uh, our fan, my like I guess appreciation of our Argentina, I'm uh, not Argentina, octopusy. And- well, I've never been, but if you want to regale the listeners for the next 45 minutes in Argentina, I'm all ears. <laughs> but then. Uh, you know, Joe Darlington's also another person who loves octopus. I think he mm. ranked because I watched Joe Darlington's 25 rankings and I always knew he loved octopus, but he ranked it in his top four movie, top four bomb movies ever. Uh, did he? I, I always I, I think for Joe, it's octopus and then all the other ones. <laughs> that's that's what it feels like sometimes. I, I didn't, re- but I guess the biggest surprise from him, I mean, this is not the Darlington Detour, but it was that I didn't realize he liked Four Year Eyes. Detour, can you imagine if we ever did that? With, but without him on it. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I, mean, I always thought, I, mean, I was kind of surprised, like, he ranked Four Year Eyes only as high, because I never heard mm-hmm. him speak about Four Year Eyes only. But to continue, I mean, because I've always shared my love of Octopussy with Joe, you know, shared my pictures that I took in London or Ger- Berlin, and and whatnot and did episodes recordings with other you know james mm-hmm. bond fans as well and, the, and like i said i thought roger looked great and i know like there are moments that are cheesy or hasn't aged too well but i thought from a fundamental this is what I'm, joe and i always said was like from a fundamental standpoint like this is a it actually does some of the quote-unquote the cold war espionage things very well and mm-hmm. unfortunately with la- latest events uh i've seen a lot of mm-hmm. memes amongst the bond community or just the general audience say how like general orlov is putin with his invasion uh general yeah. their t- territorial con- conquest ambitions 
Well, I mean, the analogy is understandable. And I'll be perfectly frank towards you, Jason, and the listeners. I, I watched it a couple of nights ago on my beautiful, beautiful projector. And that sequence at the Ministry of the, the, the Soviet Ministry of Defense meeting or whatever, wherever the heck they are. Great set, by the way. Yeah. Um, Man, when Orlov gets up and shows his map and his plans, given recent news, it's a little weird. <laughs> Watch that scene play out. It's a little weird. Yeah, some, it kind of reminds me of the uh, – I used to play a video game in, when I was in middle school, early high school, called Red Alert 2 Command and & Conquer. And hey, it's a play the same game. I love that game, and I wish they could reissue that game. And what and the story behind for our listeners is uh, obviously the history concludes it goes the way it's supposed to. But then uh, so despite the fall of the Soviet Union, Russian generals take back and try to conquer the world. And that's what uh, Orlov, General Orlov is trying to do. And if you didn't know, the actor who played General Orlov, Stephen Burkhoff, almost 30 years later, would co-star with another Bond actor in another film with Daniel Craig and David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. That's true. I do. I haven't seen that movie in a little while, so I, I do tend to forget that uh, Stephen Burkhoff is in that. Who, who does he play again? He plays the, not the, so, you know, the person who, I guess I'll call him the chief of staff of the Vanger family. Okay. So okay. he's the one who hires Daniel Craig, or he's the one who initially hires Elizabeth Salander to do the investigation he's bald with glasses mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then later on he approaches daniel craig's uh mikhail bloomquist to come to you know sweden and, right right or not okay. sweden, i'm, I'm due for a rewatch I, I i do like that movie but i haven't seen it in, in a long long time i didn't i couldn't remember that burkoff my goodness excuse me Whew. couldn't remember but, that burkoff was uh, was in that movie and another thing i really enjoyed from octopussy like or the continue one of the fascinations I did have of Octopussy. I want to know what you hate about Octopussy, Jason. <laughs> was, uh, I guess, Roger's comp. Because this is my theory. I guess we always say this is our theory in our show. is Because um, 1983 was the year of Battle of the Bonds. And in mm-hmm. which Octopussy is the much superior movie. But in hindsight, it's 2020. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, or Cubby went in you know, knowing that he was going up against Sean Connery, and the f- public still had, you know, admiration for Connery. You know, mm-hmm. 12 years since he had left the role, and I always thought that instead of trying to make Roger like down the middle or not too left, not not too c- comedic, not too serious, or because it, they were just coming off of For Your Eyes Only at the time, mm-hmm. I always thought that. Their philosophy was, no, we're going up against Sean Connery. Let Roger be Roger to the full max. And I thought that's this. And I think outside of Spy Who Loved Me, I think this is the one movie where we get to see Roger just be Roger very well and does it very well. Because, like, you see his light moments. You see his charming moments. But you also see his uh, dark moments when he kills one of the twins and says, this is for 009. I thought that was very Fleming, cold-blooded assassin. Mm -hmm. It was a little uh, darker moment, a somber moment, if you will, when uh, he and Q find VJ's, uh, poor old VJ's uh, 
Bonnie, I can't remember what it is that Bond says. I think he quotes something VJ uh, said earlier in the movie, but you know, it's obviously not a very happy moment. And and Roger plays the scene very well. Oh yeah, and then because like, I think sometimes this movie gets flack for you know being too tongue in cheek, but I think the serious and somber moments they do a very good job, and there is a lot of good moments of Roger's confidence. I mean, when I watch. When I watch like Spy Love Me, both Spy Love Me and Octopussy, I always see so much confidence and experience. Uh, in I always feel that Roger has a lot of confidence and experience in the role. Like for instance, uh, when he's in M's office, he's uh, he tells M he's like, "Oh, Kamal Khan has already left the Indian," and M's like, "Oh, you need to catch the next flight." And when he's like, "Oh, sir, I have 55 minutes to catch the next flight," and and I kind of mm-hmm. I always use that scene to like kind of like mimic my life because you know how much i travel and a lot of times mm-hmm. i travel at the very last minute and yes I like to, you do I, and i like to send i always kind of use that as a motto of my not a motto but like i always try to replicate that in my real life i was like oh well i gotta i gotta catch the next flight mm-hmm. tomorrow or something like that and it's interesting that you bring up the notion of Bond's confidence and and how it's expressed and exuded in octopussy there are some interesting moments that i that struck me maybe more than before in my most recent rewatch a couple of days ago, uh, most notably when he finally infiltrates uh, the, the the lake palace, where uh, which is uh, Octopus's estate, I guess mm-hmm. we'll call it. And so they've already had their initial conversation and Kamal Khan shows up and says, oh, Bond's dangerous. Uh, we think he's around. And she's, oh, won't you meet my new guest? And he sort of just, Bond that is, sort of, Calmly takes his glass. You know, I'm an old friend of the family, you might say. <laughs> stuff like that. And you have a nasty habit of surviving. Well, you know what they say about the fittest, you know. There are these very nice little moments. And I, I, I'm not saying, you know, had they been played by any of the other actors, I think they would have done a very good job. All, all the all the actors that have played 007 have been excellent. But there is something to how Roger Moore does his business in octopusy that's quite um it is a delicate balance it is a delicate balance and maybe a bounty he he i won't say he never matched it because i am partial to his performance in free eyes only uh quite partial in fact but but i will agree that his acting in this little duology, this early 80s duology, and no, I will not include A View to a Kill, but this is not the Avtac Reloaded. There's already been one. Um, mm-hmm. I do like this duology as from a performance standpoint from Roger Moore. I, th- I think he's quite good in both of these. Oh, I would definitely agree. And speaking of that scene uh, right before it, because this is the first Bond movie, or, or this is the only Bond movie thus far that's named after a Bond girl herself. Mm-hmm. I really love the introduction of Octopussy because, like, we first see her on the through her hands and body when she when Kamal Khan approaches her, like saying, like, Bond is the, we have an Englishman captured, and then you and then later on, uh, when Bond infiltrates the palace, uh, she's like, she says, I, I've been expecting you, and Mm-hmm. During those two introductions of Octopussy, I really love the way they portrayed, or Maude Adams portrayed the character in that, um, at least when I first watched it, and even more recently, I had the notion that, was she a good Bond girl, or was she like a villainess, or was she somewhere in between? I Not a femme fatale per se, and 
I thought that it just really added a lot of it added a lot of depth to that character. It's interesting that you you bring that up, Jason, because that's actually one of uh, one of the talking points I had as as a backup. But since you since you broached it, why don't we we get into that? There is something peculiar, and perhaps peculiar is not the correct choice of words. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. But the the interpretation and the writing that goes in to the character, the eponymous octopusy, and this has nothing to do with Maud Adam, Maud Adams's performance, because I, I think she's quite strong in the role. But as far as the writing is concerned, um, it is a little bit funny when you stop for a moment and, and ponder, who is this character? What is her raison d'être in this story and and her background and her her objectives? Because she obviously she's oblivious to the nuclear bomb subplot. She would never go along with that. That's made quite clear. But she is a smuggler. Like she knows exactly what she's doing when they're crossing the Berlin border with those jewels. Um, so there is uh, nefarious, might be overly dramatic a term, but there is something a little bit naughty about Octopussy that kind of stays until the end of the movie. And and then there's the argument that she and Bond have just before the love making, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's that string where she's. Is she trying to hire him? But but based on what? What information does she have in her possession that says that's prompting her to say, ah, if I offer him a job, of course he'll join me. I'm never clear on, on that. So there's some weird little writing doodads about the octopusy character. But I, I do want to make myself clear. I think Maude Adams is very good, though. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because like I think that's kind of like one of my complaints. I guess you said, what do I not like about Octopus? Is uh, one of the things that I mean, I love this movie, but this is one thing that has plagued a lot of Bond movies, specifically specifically the John Glenn ones. Is like sometimes they would have so many subplots and they never all add up together. It's like mm-hmm. and like I mean, M's verbatim asks, oh, why does why is General Orlov why would Gen- uh, Soviet Union general be involved in a jewelry caper and then bond replies i believed excuse the analogy we're at the tip of the tentacle Mm -hmm. but we never i you know like as i watch this movie and i try to come up with my own explanation i just never like was able to connect the nuclear subplot to the jewelry capers like i mean was the jewelry caper supposed to fund the the nuclear explosion or the nuclear attack or like i just riddle me riddle me they they don't explain that part that I, I think it, it, it's it's a strange script for all of its strengths and i know joe a uh, friend of the show joe darlington you know as we alluded to he loves this movie for all the strengths of this script courtesy of maybaum and and g wilson mcgee uh it does have some curious l- loopholes uh Who's providing this nuclear? I the Russians have nuclear capabilities, so he might have just stolen it from their arsenal, possibly. Um, as to how it ties into the jewelry, for all the complications, complications of the machinations, I think it's just as simple uh, as well. I need to have I, General Orlov, need to have this bomb blow up in West Berlin. And I know they're smuggling diamonds from the east to the west. They're forging. They're so forging. I'll just 
Oh yeah, they're for the thing is like before that they're forging all they're stealing diamonds, they're stealing jewelry, forging them and returning the forged copies to the so like I mean right. the whole deal with the double O nine getting the forged copy forged Fabergé was it the real or the fab I guess he uh, 009 finds the fake Fabergé yeah, as Fabergé. highlighted by M. Um, MI6 is has has sufficient intelligence to believe that the Russians might be involved, which I guess they are. Well, they are because it's from the Hermitage um, collection, and they are insofar as this Kamal Khan, who is our secondary villain, co-villain. Uh, they Jim Fanning says he usually sells. He's obviously selling the real ones usually because we know the one in their hands is a fake. And now he's buying. Now he usually sells, but now he's buying. Mm-hmm. It's because he needs to buy the real one back to create another forgery mm-hmm. because they lost the forger it's like what the hell is going on and why is there a nuclear explosion involved <laughs> yeah so like so that's like some of the some of the not writing but some of the loophole involved in that like i always just thought like not everything like adds up at the end i mean i still forgive the movie for its flaws but like that just like as i got old, as i rewatched it i was like oh why why is it like, why is this happening i was like how did I think, it jump from um, one plot to, i mean you know who two. would also be stumped you, you and i know i think i'm pretty sure if we invited benoit blanc onto the show he wouldn't know what the hell is going on either <laughs> yeah but uh despite all its flaws like another i would say one of my favorite lines from one of roger's best lines is when he gets stabbed in the tuck tuck chase and then, and then we find out he had his uh, uh, winnings in his back mm-hmm. pocket, and he and he's like, "Oh, thank God for hard currency." He throws mm-hmm. it. Right. <laughs> and then uh, a lot of I well, at the time of this recording, Indiana Jones: Dial of Destiny hasn't come out, but then there is a tuck tuck chase with a brawl inside, and a lot of Bond fans have been saying, "Oh, Indiana Jones is copying." octopus in many ways such as the tuk tuk chase the train mm-hmm. top sequence chase and maybe an airplane chase and all the above or i'm sure we will find out in the uh, months to come what the, uh... i did want to go into i guess some of the historic some little further historical background regarding this movie is uh because battle 1983 was the year when we when the world got two bomb movies in the same year do you think we'll ever get get a chance get a year <laughs> get a year when do you think that will ever happen in our lifetime? Well, the only fashion, well, not under similar circumstances as uh, as in 1983. I, I think Eon and and the proprietors Danjak, I guess, technically speaking, it would be Danjak. I guess they they I, I think they bought any and all possible rights they could. I, I do know this, um, and I don't want to de- derail the conversation too much because uh, it's not a Fleming episode, but nevertheless. I do know that uh, the Fleming texts, the the um, what do they call that? Uh, there's a legal term to uh, the period of time yeah. when rights. Anyways, though, in certain countries such as Canada, uh, those rights have expired. So the only analogous situation I can imagine is someone 
gets cute and and decides to make a Fleming adaptation, but there are none of the cinematic hallmarks in the film, and but that would be a little bit silly. And the only other uh, possibility I can think of, and and the good Lord knows I, I would love this to happen, is uh, since since they love they've loved taking so much time between recent movies. One time they say, you know what? We're going to do a couple back-to-backs. And we're <laughs> going to release them like six months apart. I don't think it'll ever happen. But those are the only two circumstances under which I could ever imagine us getting two Bonds in the same year. Well, speaking of delays, one of the movies got delayed due to production issues and a lot of infighting during production. Because apparently uh, at the time, they were supposed to come out the same weekend, but then Octopussy came out in June and... Never seen every game came out in September and it earned considerably le- consider total worldwide consider mm-hmm. earned considerably less than Never Seen. I mean Octopussy and Sean Connery himself has been on the record saying he hated Never Seen Ever Again and will never work on another Bond movie after that interview. But uh, after that movie, <laughs> like during all the press conferences, and I it's a good thing he, he he it's a good thing he was precise in his response and said he'd never work on another Bond movie because he did play Bond again in a video game so yeah <laughs> that is true well the movie was titled Never Say Never Again the but anyway uh I I um I always like I said I met when I met Roger Moore the late Roger Moore in 2015 I really loved the way he does his interview styles and I can't remember the bbc reporter but uh one of the bbc maybe it was cbs or B, i don't know a reporter was on the set of octopussy and there mm-hmm. I, I think it was at the time of it was in pinewood studios at the time when they're shooting the the palette the monsoon palace attack the finale because roger was wearing his uh finale outfit with the navy mm-hmm. the navy jacket the white shirt outfit, and all that. By the way. oh Great i love outfit. that we'll get to that soon but the interview like talked about the production and Roger was gave a very charming response and the reporter asked like oh how do you feel about he's like oh how did how'd you get guys get started here you know he was asking about the battle of the bonds and then Roger joked he's like oh uh you know Jack Schwartzman who was the producer of Never Say Never Again he's like Jack Schwartzman came to me he's like do I do I want to do this one so I went to Sean Connery and said hey Sean do you want to do this one? Do you want to do the one with Cubby or do you want to do the one with Jack? And, and I, since Cubby didn't like, since Sean didn't like Cubby, Cubby went to Jack and he's like, he's there and I'm here. Mm. Yeah, and then, that does sound like a very Roger response. Very. Uh, uh, and then, the, and then the next question he asked was, you know, like Roger always like, li- I always thought Roger did a magnificent job despite like many people who thought he lived under Sean Connery's shadows and. The next question that reporter asked is like, how would you feel when you go into the cinema? At the time, it was still scheduled to come. Both movies were supposed to come at the same time. And then uh, he was like, how would you feel if when you go to the cinemas and you see your poster of Octopus, you say Roger Moore's James Bond, but on the other side of the aisle, you see another poster that said Sean Connery is James Bond. In lo- and then and then Roger gave a very smart response and. It's a very Roger response, but a very smart response. Roger said, you know, at the moment, there are two productions of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream going on at the London West End. And there have been times when multiple productions of Hamlet have been played in the same time, in the same town at the same time, 
at the same place. So why are you guys thinking this is a different case? Yeah, well, I guess, uh, the, you know, that that's that's an answer that can be unpacked in a number of yeah. different ways. Sometimes it's our, our uh, how do you say that, myopic or myopic? I don't, I don't yeah. even know how to say that. The, our myopic view of what culture is, because mm-hmm. uh, he is correct. I mean, there are multiple versions of Shakespeare plays uh, prepared and played all the time. Uh, so why would this be any difference? By the same token, uh, a lot of people are interested in James Bond movies, so it's kind of a big deal. So yeah, I think you can unpack that answer in a few different ways that that make uh, the reply uh, very astute and by the same token make the reply sort of just trying to like, will you stop asking me about this? Just <laughs> enough already. But then I would also like to add, I know I emphasize this throughout this recording is a. Uh, during that interview, Roger looked extremely handsome in because I always loved that outfit and I always thought Roger looked really good. And, and I, it's great. I love it. And then I know Orlebor Brown reproduced that jacket and uh, yeah, yeah, that, that Harrington jacket. And I actually really wanted to buy that jacket and whatnot. And but until you saw I, that it was like eight thousand dollars or whatever the hell, I, I was willing to justify the oh, yeah, well, I don't own a single Orlebor Brown jacket product then i was like man i'm gonna make this my first but then when i saw the material and and tried it on i was like the reason why i i I actually genuinely wanted to buy it but then i was like one i live in michigan where it's colder most of the time Mm -hmm. here and the jackets are very light material so i was like why would i i was like why when would i even be able to wear this and breezy summer night i mean to be fair the climax of the movie is taking place in india it's a little bit warm there and he's wearing a jacket so i guess it's like it's an evening jacket on a breezy in a breezy warm climate when the sun is down and it is a little bit chillier just a little bit chillier yeah and you're comfy with a light jacket i think that's the purpose and then i said to myself like but there's so many great navy harrington jackets i could buy just i don't have to buy that specific one so that's why i don't have it but uh but maybe all the world, maybe all Brown will sucker you in to find something next time. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, speaking while we're on that topic, I really love that entire climax sequence because like I thought to me it's just like very classic Bond because like I I know some people complain but I loved it when uh, when we see the hot air balloon with the Union Jack emblem <laughs> on the balloon. And I was like, that's just British panache to the core. And I was like, I love it because like it's like short. I remember it's not watching. Conspicuous. No, no, no. He's like, he's like, oh, I, and he's like, oh, I trust you could tr- trust this contraption cue. And he's like, oh, it goes by hot air. And he's like, oh, I, then I bet you can. <laughs> I mm, love that. Line. Yeah. Well, maybe not my favorite line of the movie. I, I am uh, pleased that you bring up the climax because uh, you know we haven't had many army. One of my favorite things, and I've said this a number of times on the history of the podcast, is one of my favorite things in Bond movies are the ones that end where the climax features two small armies. Uh, I think the last one is Living Daylights in Afghanistan. I don't think we've had one since then. And um, where where would you place this one? Uh, you don't need to give like, like an official numerical ranking, but is this one of your favorite uh, army climate, armies are not the right word, but two sides, uh, you know, fairly large forces going I'll head probably, to head. I will say this, uh, 
I love Spectre, but I'll rank it higher than the Spectre finale because the third act sucked in that movie. <laughs> well, not 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 any final act. I'm referring, you know, uh, oh, you know oh, Volcano and You Only Live Twice. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The smart armies, the underwater and Thunderball, smart armies. So I would say this is if you okay, since you phrase it like that, I'll put the Living Daylights and Spy Who Loved Me as one and two or two and one. Mm-hmm, I'll put mm-hmm. those two as like yeah. the best of the best, and. I'll rank it higher than Moonraker. I mean, I do like Moonraker a lot too, but I'll just, but I'm not sure how would I, and I'll rank it higher than You Only Live Twice because I love Roger's outfit in this movie, but uh, I don't know if I would. <laughs> That's I, the reason why. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> I didn't like Sean Connery's gray turtleneck outfit, but I don't it's know if I would bad. rank it. I don't know if I would rank it higher than Goldfinger or Thunder, or Thunderbar or if Goldfinger mm-hmm. can count that, but definitely mm-hmm. Spy Who Loved Me and Living Daylights will be like the grails, the holy grails. Yeah, yeah, no, though those are pretty good. I, I would admit that I, I am partial to You Only Live Twice, uh, regardless of the the poor choice of clothing uh, by 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 uh, Jimbo in that one. Uh, I, I do like the Octopussy. I think I like the sets, uh, which which we're revisiting. Yeah. A, 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 anyways, it's not like we haven't been to those locations previously in the film, but. But I do like those sets. I mean, Peter Lamont and, and Alan Hume, who shoots the film, the director of photography, uh, I think they do an absolutely excellent job. And, and Oh, I thought the set design was amazing in this movie. Yeah, I like the little outdoor court where a yeah. lot of the fight is taking place. I think that's a lot of fun. That's really well done. And you have the little balcony where Gobinda and Kamal Khan, are, they can see Bond uh, coming towards them uh, via the hot air balloon. There's there's some really nice shots and some nice set design going on. And in the, I really like the interior of it too, with the spiral st- staircase and when yes. Roger slides down with his mm. AK-47. Yeah. And uh, except no substitutes. <laughs> yep. And uh, I I thought this was always a very classic Bond scene in that uh because a Q has a CCTV on his hot air balloon and then. Roger uses his Seiko LCD watch to see mm-hmm. where Octopussy and uh, Kamal Khan are going. And then and he noticed that that one of the walls is a secret door. And I always loved that. I was like, because whenever you see like spoofs of James Bond stuff, one of the biggest tropes is always like secret passage doors. And, Oct- mm-hmm. and that scene was always that. And I, I just love that's why I love the finale a lot, too. And but speak, I just wanted to get touched the monsoon palace set design really quickly is uh you know like earlier in the film when they have the dinner when roger when bond is captured by kamal khan and then and he's having dinner with kamal khan and mm-hmm. Magda, I, I thought the conversation was really well directed and whatnot but uh when i was re-watching this movie kind of reminded me of the leaked early draft of specter's uh storyboard because like what we eventually got was the the dentist torture chair by mm-hmm. Blofeld but that initially at the time it was uh <laughs> it was Bond and Madeline having dinner with Oberhauser Blofeld or mm-hmm. Heinrich Stockman whatever you want to call him because like he went through like three different what the hell his name is <laughs> and then apparently the dinner table and then apparently like they played like card games or or a die game at the dinner table and then during the dinner what made the dinner table scene very tense was there were laser or sniper lasers pointed at pointing at both bond and madeline during the entire scene or something like that mm-hmm. something like that i i know what you're referring to but it's it's been a while since i've dived into the uh 
never made Spectre, so I don't. But uh, I'll trust your judgment. But uh, I mean, because like when I watch the scene, like you see Roger display the two emotions, like he's tense, but he's also you know very relaxed. He's like, oh, what if I'm not inclined to talk? You know, in his rod, in his <laughs> very, very in his very Roger elegance method. But he's also he's like, I think you kill my appetite. So you kind of see the both sides of it. Mm. Well, it's funny because the dinner scene brings up uh, another one of the talking points uh, that I had. And this is more of a, you know, little fun detour, a detour within it. No, this is a really a detour within a reloaded. Fancy that Uh, is is the I find this is one of the films where we see Bond experience um, like everyday genuine life moments. The one at the dinner scene is when he's grossed out by the food that he's served you can like see it in his eyes that he's not interested at all in eating this food and sometimes that happens you don't want to eat what you're served and you think it's it's not to your liking um another one is is a little bit later when he's in germany and he's racing against the clock and he needs to get to the to the air base and these teens in a car they drive uh. by the, and he flips them the bird um and then there's the, the couple like he's the, the couple who do are are yeah. kind enough to give him a lift and you know offering him sausage and beer nine nine danka and stuff mm-hmm. like that. these i find octopuses filled with these little moments where bond is dealing with like everyday s-h-i-t that nobody ever wants to deal with but he has to deal with today <laughs> i feel and, that doesn't happen very often and then for more younger listeners uh, there used to be something called telephone booths if you had mm-hmm. to make a call and when the woman goes to the telephone booth before he does he gets he also expresses frustration he's like well yes. screw you well screw you i'm gonna steal your car instead yeah not that we condone that sort of a behavior not that there are many telephone booths remaining anyways but yeah. but uh, yes he does that's another one where he I, I you know we all had to really make a phone call but there was a person already using the damn phone booth that was very frustrating and now bond is frustrated like we used to be it's related. Octopussy, what I'm saying is Octopussy is the most relatable <laughs> movie. It's the most relatable bomb, but it's also, like I kind of emphasized all along, is, is where we really see Bond or Roger Moore express a very cavalier, the most cavalier attitude of of his Bond. I'm, I want to say if it's even the... I mean, Roger Moore was always the most cavalier of the Bonds, but he's definitely more cavalier in this portrayal than the other six movies. Or one of the more... That might be a bit of a tall... Maybe maybe slightly too tall of a statement for me to be in complete agreement. I, I find he's cavalier in all seven of his yeah, movies. Yeah, I don't know if this is the one where he's the most cavalier. Or, or he's we def- might be splitting hairs. Or he's probably more... Yeah, we could probably analyze that all day, but he... he that's another detour. In which Bond movie is Roger Moore the most cavalier? Like a six-hour-long episode. Yeah, and then uh, I just wanted to touch two, a few more stuff. Is uh, one obviously the locations because I've been to Berlin. Berlin's a wonderful city, but as I rewatched this movie, I was like, wow, they actually. It's kind of funny that they advertise this movie around Berlin so much, but we only see, but they only shot like one long sequence in berlin which mm-hmm. is the sh- when he's in m's uh right mercedes and it's an sh- overshot of them driving down charlottesburg mm-hmm. the western side and then he just drives yeah. at the checkpoint charlie to go to the eastern side and then i do well, I, guess, the- I, I guess there was a lot of hoopla about the fact that they were permitted to not that they're the only movie that could ever do that i guess but you know i guess it was a big deal that they 
had permission to do that. But you know, I, I agree. If they market it as as heavily as 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 you're suggesting, and you know, turns out we see Checkpoint Charlie for about 17 seconds. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, sometimes movies do that, and then I do love Roger's gray suit in that scene with M as well, and even like when he's in disguise, I always love that tan jack, the tan circus jacket that he wears. Yes, when Except, when he's pretending to like help them lift stuff into the train and that. Yeah. Oh, that's a great outfit. I love that. I mean, just remove the back logo. Like, I'll buy that jacket now. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's very tempting. Without the logo, I agree. I, I don't need to be uh, pretending I'm part of an octopusy circus, whatever the hell that is. I have not been there, but apparently all the train stations, like such as when he's fighting off General Orloff and stealing Orloff's Mercedes-Benz, which I love that action sequence where like when the mm. bonds, when the Mercedes tires all flatten out or mm-hmm. rupture and then he drives a car <laughs> down the track, the train tracks. I always love that scene. And it's especially... It's more cool because John Barry's score is playing. <clears throat> John Barry's score is playing. Bond, iconic Bond mm-hmm. scores playing. So mm-hmm. you're like in your Bond mode when that when this yeah. happens. Yeah, it's definitely a Bond moment. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. And that's also not Germany, but apparently it's called the Neen Valley Railway. So it's like a. Cla- there's a lot of like old classic rail stations that you could visit mm-hmm. in in England, and it's not op- not functional anymore, or at least that I know of. And Mm-hmm. In my next visit to the UK, that'll be one of the locations places right. I'll be scouting. Well, I mean, they they do go go to England, you know, around Pinewood, sometimes not too far from Pinewood for a lot. And and this film in particular, you mentioned the train chase, or I guess car versus train sequence, as as ridiculous as that sounds. Well, that is, we are um, talking that's about in a England. Bond. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are talking about a Bond movie, fair point. I know that's in England. Uh, a lot of the air base stuff is in England. And apparently, again, according to that MI6 Confidential uh, Special Edition, um, it, the, the air base in England was actually being used by the Americans at the time. So it's, yep. it's logistically made sense. I'm not sure where the pre-titles air base was filmed at, but I do know the, the actual aerial stunts, like when the Acrostar goes under the bridge and the, or the aqueduct, mm-hmm. whatever – Dallas filmed in one of our f- friend of the show and fellow Bond fan, Connor Bentley. He lives in Utah. Dallas filmed in Utah. Yes, 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 that's true. They, they did shoot a lot of stuff in Utah, a lot of, well, the aerial sequence. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. I keep, it's, it's funny. I read it yesterday and today. Now I can't remember. But some of the, uh, the mod, they, they shot some model work for the uh, the very end of the climax when, when Kamal Khan's plane explodes and uh, – they had to sort of reshoot them some things, and they had to reshoot the moment when the plane explodes, the model plane explodes. But I'm trying to remember if I want to say what was uh, what's his face, uh, B.J. Worth, who was an Olympic parachuter. Mm-hmm. Uh, he part. Yeah, I think he plays Gobinda, or he 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 plays a stuntman. Yeah. Yeah, the stuntman for Gobinda in that sequence was that in Utah as well. I want to say that was in Utah. I could believe that, and. Uh... And as I was, and then you know, as I was watching, I was like, "Wow, they actually did all that aerial stunt work for real at the time." And yeah. you know, we could always say, you know, That's John Glenn. That, that is just mind-boggling stunt. It's unbelievable. So I was saying to myself, I was like, "So John Glenn had his Bond crew do these stunts before Tom Cruise did it 32 years later in Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation, like hanging off, flying." Take that, Tom Cruise. Yeah, take that. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, hey, you know what? Imitation is the uh, what's the expression? The best form of flattery? Is that how it goes? Yes, it is. So, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna imitate anyone, you might as well imitate Bond. You're, Bond. You know, ha- half the job is done already if you're imitating Bond. So go ahead. And then in the not in the not yet released movie, uh, from the trailers and scenes that I've seen, there's a lot of scenes that I could tell will be inspired by Octopussy in the upcoming mm. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One and maybe Part Two too. And we bring up to the most important point of this tonight's recording and it's because we already regaled on the late sir roger moore himself but we have to talk about the titular character herself octopusy played by miss maude adams so here's a ironic story and it actually worked out sometimes when people say you know just like the no time night delay like it sucks at the time but then it works out in the end this is an, another example of that is uh oh so in 2018, I happened to be in summer of 2018. I happened to be in Berlin that summer for a week because, you know, I wanted to finally, like, you know, immerse myself in Berlin. And Because you're you, also, Jason. Because you're you. Yeah, yeah because I'm here. Yeah. And, you know, I you know did everything I could do, do in Berlin, outside Berlin. Uh, uh, what is it? Potsdam, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, on one of the days... On the Saturday of that weekend, of the of the seven days I was there, uh, it was the 30th, 35th anniversary of Octopussy being held by, or being led by the James Bond Deutschland Club, the James Bond Germany Club. Mm-hmm. And the event was a screening of, screening of Octopussy at the Berlin Spy Museum, followed by a bus tour of Checkpoint Charlie and, you know, other Berlin Cold War spots. Right. And at the time, but before, and then I found out about that, and I emailed the James Bond Deutschland Club. I was like, "Hey, or, um, can I still get a ticket?" Because I was like, you know, I was like, I was like, "How many Bond fans can there really be? Let alone like people who like Octopussy as much as I do." Well, long and lo and behold, it was sold out. And they said, "Oh, we'll put you on the wait list." And I was like, "Okay, that's." And then mm-hmm. I was like, oh, "I was like, man, I was like, I wish I saw Maude Adams." I was like, on the fingertips of meeting Miss. Maude Adams. You you had never but, seen her in present in in you had never been in time. her presence before at the time. Okay. Yeah, at the time though, no. and then and then as a result, I decided to do the Reichstag uh, tour of Berlin, which was free, so I saved myself eighty euros. Oh, wonderful! Right, such good news. Yeah, and then Reichstag tour for any visitors who go to Berlin, definitely do that tour. You do have to reserve it because you know it's a government building. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then this is summer 2018, so July July 2018 is when this event happened. Fast forward 13 months, no, 15 months later, September 2019. It's very specific. Uh, for, uh, my hometown of Baltimore usually holds a nostalgic Comic Con, you know, which brings like, you know, like actors in their former glory years for Comic Con and whatnot. And usually there's a couple Bond alums there here and there. But September 2019, that happened to be the one year when Maude Adams and Britt Eklund came together because, like, they will come one, one will come one year, but not the other and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But it was the, uh, they had a Golden Gun reunion. And I was like, hey, it's in my hometown. So, and so, so initially I tried to go meet Maude Adams. Instead, Maude Adams came to me. 
Well, that just goes to show how hip uh, Baltimore, uh, Maryland is. It's uh, it's it's a happening town. Frankly, I, I know very little about Baltimore. So uh, Baltimore is also where Daniel Craig was when he got the call. He got the fateful call from Barbara Broccoli saying, "You are here to." Well, according to Daniel, she said, "Here's to you, kiddo. You're mm-hmm. the next James Bond." Right. He was shooting uh, that thing with Nicole Kidman, I think. Invasion. Uh, yeah. Right, yeah. Right, five right. minutes from my five minutes from where my current house is in Baltimore. Well, well, well. From, yeah. from Fleming to film and everything in between. Everything in between. Well, that's 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 pretty cool. And uh, yeah, you've shared some pictures with you and and Maude Adams and Britt Eklund. Or they sound, but those those would have been at the uh, the Comic Con, but or nostalgia. Yeah. What did you call it? Nostalgia. I guess they call it nostalgic con. And I nostalgia. thought they were both very very lovely people. And you know, I've always heard, you know, like things about great things about Maude Adams more so than Britt Eklund. And mind mm-hmm. you, Britt Eklund was she was more, I guess, uh, not I want to say. Uh, she was not feisty, but uh, be careful, she was more, Jason. Like, be careful. Uh, Britt Eklund was very, uh, uh, very uh, not. A, I don't know. It's saucy. She was. Uh, she was very sociable. She was extremely sociable. Is what she was. Where, <laughs> okay. um, whereas Maude Adams is sociable, but she was more like I guess like laid back and mm-hmm. I guess she was a very gracious woman. By, by the way, and it's funny you say I that. My, in, in and the... I got my octopusy Blu-ray signed by Maude. Maude oh, Adams. Cool. That's nice. But it's funny you bring about, about the point of that uh, Maude Adams was perhaps the more um, less sociable of the two, the more reserved, so to speak, because uh, John Glenn actually brings that up. Again, it's sort of my main reading this week, the MI6 special edition on the film. And he does mention that she was very lovely. She was a very professional, wonderful actress, loved having her on set, but she didn't engage in the... Um, the, the ne'er-do-well of, of the staff members and, and the other cast members and the tricks that Roger Moore would do. She she would well, she wouldn't engage in those as emphatically. So maybe that speaks a little bit more to her uh, quiet like, nature, possibly. And then uh, I also met, I mean, so like at the evening with Sir Roger Moore event I attended in 2015, someone asked the question, you know, Sir Roger, who was your favorite Bond girl? And then Roger usually in public always says, oh, my wife, Christina, or my mm-hmm. favorite Bond girl is Barbara Broccoli, even though, <laughs> even though Roger never worked for Barbara herself. But then, you know, because, you know, it was, it was a it was a pretty uh, intimate crowd. So we were all, the English were like, no, Roger, tell us who your favorite Bond girl was. And then he right. finally relented. He said, since I co-starred with her twice, Maude Adams is my favorite mm-hmm. Bond girl. And I, and I told her that story and she was really touched. I th- I know he vouched to to an extent. I'm I'm not saying that Roger Moore pulled all the strings to get Maude Adams on Octopussy, but I know he was one of the voices that vouched quite strongly for her when she was being considered because she was she played the role of Tatiana Romanova in the uh, Josh uh, not Josh Brolin one of my yeah, it is Josh Brolin no James Brolin James, James Brolin uh, Thanos is dead Thanos is yeah, dead Thanos is Papa. And and she plays Tatiana, so yeah. she had already she had continued. I don't know if you would call that work. Be interesting, though. Do you? I mean, yeah, you must get paid for that, right? If if Madame's yeah. got paid, yeah, for that. yeah, you but, get paid. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's she. She always stuck around, so to speak, with the Bond family. Anyway, that's some good stories. Good stories. And then that's um, kind of interesting because, uh, I mean, I I know the person who screen tested with Daniel didn't become a Bond girl, but uh. Mariam Dava was the screen, the Tatiana Romanova screen test girl for multiple actors, Pierce, mm-hmm. Timothy, and mm-hmm. and whatnot. But obviously, she didn't. I mean, she eventually co-star became the lead in The Living Daylights and 
whoever played Polina and A View to a Kill was for Sam Neill, and that Maude Adams right. was for James James Brolin. Right, right, right. We almost had an American Bond. Well, I guess the inside gag is that we have gotten an American Bond since uh, Daniel Craig is of dual citizenship. So uh, that, that then, gag uh, is played out, I guess. That, yeah, it is. I mean, Pierce Brosnan eventually became a U.S. citizen, but Daniel Craig played Bond while he was a U.S. citizen. Right. So we did get an American Bond after all. Right. Um, well, I, I think that pretty much touches all the points about Octopussy's uh, 40th anniversary. I'm, I'm pretty much what would you give? Out. What would, uh, I'd say, what would you give it an overall score? I mean, I hate, I usually hate doing this for Bond movies because, like, but you're asking you me to do one. You're you're asking me to do the thing you hate. That's that's very. Yeah. I don't uh, know. If a score. Like... I mean, it will bring me uh, the reason, and then there's a reason for this. Uh, oh really? Give it a score out of ten. Give it. A... Um, I would say no. The, the problem with a question like that is that I love all the Bond movies so much. Like the worst one is like a five to me. So I guess Octopussy would be like a really solid eight, eight and a half. Okay, no, that's that's very fair because like, uh, I I mean I've been doing a lot of those scores like you know like not arbitrarily more more or less some more specific than others like most of the people know how much I like No Time Die but as much as I like that movie I I could never give it you know I I would do all the mac quantitative qual- mm-hmm. qualitative analysis and I can only give No Time Die an eight and a half out of ten. So there's a significant portion of the Bond fan base that would go only eight and a half. Why so high? Because <laughs> like if Casino and Skyfall or from or Spy Lummy are the, the solid tens for me or mm-hmm. you know, for me. No, for sure. That's fine. Casino, Skyfall, Spy Lummy, From Russia, like those and Goldfinger, if those five, those four are your mm-hmm. solid. Uh, yeah, those if those five are solid tens for me. Uh, no time dies a solid eight and a half, and then uh, Octopussy. I'll give it a seven, seven and a half. No, I'll I'll give it a solid seven and a half. And then the re- not a the soft reason I, one, a solid one. The reason I bring that up is because uh, our dear, fa- our dear fan of the show, and we're also a fan of his show, Mr. David Zaritsky. He uh did several videos with his son Ellis, and I actually love all the videos that he does with the non-bond community members. Mm-hmm. Such as his niece, uh, uh, Marissa, I think, and but Ellis, his son Ellis, really loved Octopus, and then they did a comparison, oh, okay. and then they did one of the videos that he did was because I think at the time David wasn't as warm to Octopus, and then mm-hmm. but whereas Ellis was, and they watched it together, and they did a before and after video, and then they both came to like a solid seven seven point three rating. I remember so seven point three. They they got to seven point three. Okay, that's yeah. that's a very uh, strong mark. Seven point three. We'll go with seven point three. Fair enough. So, whereas like Joe Darlington will give it a final four, and yes, yeah, so that's that's why uh, that's why I wanted to uh, see how the movie ranked for you. No, oh no, I, I like it quite a bit. I don't think it's a perfect film. We we sort of went into the uh, the weeds about uh, sort of the inconsistencies and incongruencies of the script and the plot, but. But I think it's it's it sort of reminds me of uh, not too long ago we recorded at the time we're recording this episode it wasn't so long ago we did Glass Onion and I feel I sort of said the same thing you know it doesn't have as strong a strip as, as a strong a script as Knives Out but I still think it's really entertaining and I guess that's my conclusion of Octopus it's not the greatest script but I greatly enjoyed the movie um, I, I would agree that no, I think that's a perfect statement and you know. Just as Octop- just as uh, Roger Moore said, uh, we're hitting the tip of the tentacle. Uh, ow, I got something. 
something's hitting me right now. I think something's, something's stuck hitting. on me. Something's stuck on me. I'm trying oh. to get it off of me. Okay. And and then I think it's not the octopusy uh, logo. It's, it's another not, it's not a little octopusy. No, it's not the my. It's not my little octopusy. But there's another octopus being stuck on my hand. Oh, he's stuck on your hand and not and not like that poor bastard uh, who gets it on his face. Uh, of course, it, oh, might, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be on the face. It could be on other body parts, yeah. other extensions. And this octopus is talking to me. Oh, wow. I never had a talking animal in, my sh- in our show before. But this octopus is asking, Jason, do you have people everywhere? You know what? I would very next time uh, we're we're gonna do a double reloaded, a double barrel shotgun reloaded, and I want to interview that octopus. I, I need to know what that octopus has to has to say about James Bond movies. Um, that is definitely one of the more curious episode interruptions we've ever had. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't that I can't think of one that was as messed up as that one. You sure it was on your your hand, not somewhere? Yeah, else? it's on my hand still. It's still uh, holding on to me. It's not letting me go. <laughs> Uh, uh, help. <laughs> well, uh, little octopus, see, we do have people everywhere. Uh, www.jamesbondcomplex.com, which I believe exists. Um, anchor.fm, if you want to listen to us, since we're hosted at Anchor. Uh, there's a YouTube channel. Uh, we've been a little bit slow on YouTube, but we're still working on some things. Just search for the James Bond Complex, subscribe, and tickle us with the thumbs up button. And uh, there's Facebook. Uh, there is Instagram, which is at the James Bond Complex, which you, you are predominantly managing. Although sometimes I and, and Emery will pitch in with something, but it's, it's mostly your baby. Um, and you can listen to us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, the Quebec one. The name escapes me at the moment. And my favorites, my BFFs, Apple Podcasts. Uh, search for the James Bond Complex, subscribe, write a review, and leave us. A five, leave us five octopusy tattoo review. Uh, Jason, you're somewhere on uh, the interwebs. Uh, I like pretending I can never remember, so remind me. So I am on Instagram at jasxon88, and though it's gonna my account will be quiet for a little bit, but don't leave yet. Stick around because there will be a lot, and I mean a lot of content coming. Uh, that will be related to Fleming film and everything in between. And like the saying saying like the saying goes, when it rains, it pours. My goodness, this is a, a momentous note. Uh, I, I I feel I'm I'm quite teased at the moment. I'm I'm aroused uh, with my imagination, of course. So the, 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 there are no I'm not referring to any other such arousal, but <laughs> my imagination is aroused. Uh, well, I mean, on that note, it's been a pleasure. Uh, always, it's always fun recording with you, Jason. And and you know, it was time to go back into uh, Octopussy. Happy to do this 40th anniversary reloaded. And just as James Bond always returned, we're sort of we're sort of back in the gray area. We're not sure when he's coming back, but he'll come back. Uh, but so too will the James Bond complex with um, whatever is scheduled in the Google Calendar. And sur ce, toujours un plaisir. Merci et à la prochaine. C'est la proxima. Ciao, belle. Tirojoso, kamsamnida. Anyongese. Arigato. Matane. Would you would you be amused? For example, if the advertising came out and said Sean Connery is.
James Bond. Uh... Well, I think there are two productions in London going on at the moment of Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean, there have been many times Hamlet's been playing at the same time, in the same town. And your interpretation of Bond has been... Is Hamlet. And his is... <laughs> well, his is Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs>